Welcome back, Hemming Brainiacs, to the Hemming Brainiac podcast. The podcast of excellence. We're talking about chapter 72. Sorry for messing up the uh, discussion forum yesterday by accidentally calling chapter 71, chapter 72. This time we really are talking about chapter 72. I promise. The discussion prompt was this. This book is giving me a headache. Bloody Phil. Um, Lady Rostova says, hey, also experiencing headaches. What is wrong with this guy? He's acting like a teenage person. No, not an adult who has spent three years abroad. P.S. Nora is probably my favorite character. Her only flaw is loving a stupid idiot. Yeah, Nora is uh, my favorite too. Uh, at least my favorite person of in the... Um, but I also think Mildred is a really good character. I think she's a, a complete dickhead. Don't get me wrong. But uh, in terms of like character uh, sketching, you know, I think the author's done a really good job with her. Um, it really makes you feel like she's based on a real person, doesn't it? Like when the author gets something so right and a character seems so sort of vivid, you can't help but think that's a sketch of a real person, but maybe not. Maybe it's a very skilled author and they've come up with a character and made them feel very, very real. Jan Brunt said, it would be an interesting development if Mildred kept the baby and Philip had an attachment to it. He hasn't had any family since Louisa, no one but Mildred, to lavish attention upon. In my experience, babies are very free with their sweet little cuddles and I could see that being something Philip would enjoy in spite of himself. Unfortunately, nothing good ever happens in this book, so Mildred will likely abandon her child, find another boyfriend and leave Philip with her debts. Intrepid said, that sounds very Mildred-esque, or Mildredian. Mildredian. <laughs> Mildredian, I feel like you could use that as a, that could become a thing. Um, yeah, like, Mildred is acting very Mildred right now. She's very, very, very Mildredian, as is her want. Um, yeah, I think you're right. Not Nothing good's going to happen. Let's just... This guy's going for literary greatness in the creation of this book, and no happy ending ever <laughs> achieved literary greatness. Um, also, it just seems like back then, although this isn't that long ago, this is turn of the century, but in like 1800s books, and some turn of the century ones too, and especially British ones, there's it's like kids... Kids are just like, you just get it like a nanny and, you know, you see the kid once or twice a day for a little bit of, um, <laughs> for a little bit of parent time just to remind them who mum is. Um, but other than that, it's like they're kind of out of sight, out of mind. And I wouldn't be surprised. Put it that way. I don't think these guys, it's just going to be, you know, Phil, Mildred and, and Baby Makes Three, I think. You know, we're not going to see a lot of this baby. Um, I'm Norwegian says, I haven't commented lately, working late, and the gym has reduced me to a blob lying in bed watching reality TV until I go to sleep. Well, you know, at least you're a blob that's been to the gym. <laughs> um, 
Um, I'm just noticing that everyone's tag is Morecambe, the author that shall not be named. And I'm wondering if you're all trolling me by trolling me by having Morgan showing up as everyone's um, version of the book they're reading. Um, I've watched like three seasons of Terrace House in the past week. It's like Big Brother, except it's Japanese and innocent. They spend like two months working towards hand-holding and treat that like a big deal. It's great. <laughs> Sounds great. Uh, I don't. I can't stomach a lot of reality TV, if I'm honest. Um, especially Australian reality TV. I don't know if you've seen much of that, but oh my god, they um they really rely on like dramatic music in Australian reality TV, and a lot of it is to do with renovating old homes. Um, it's a big thing here. We really love kind of like all the European, British, you know, um, or like fixing up a chateau or renovating lounge rooms or moving to the sea, sea change, or, or you know, all basically shows about relocating and fixing up a house. Um, there's maybe a hundred of them spread across the various TV networks. Um, but the Australian ones are particularly bad because I don't know what it is with Australian reality TV creators, but they use the most dramatic music they can find. It seriously sounds like um, like they're marching into a war. Like it's the kind of music that when Napoleon was having the Battle of Borodino and it was at its most dramatic, intense moment, the kind of epic, huge music that you could possibly, the most epic music you could possibly imagine. Um, that's the that's the music they use for the entire show. That'll so be like, we need to, we need to reinstall double pane glass in this bedroom double pane glass it's like it's crazy i cannot watch it and that's what they do with all australian reality tv so uh why am i talking about this oh yeah because you were watching a japanese reality tv show um anyway let's get back on track and i said that as i read the rest of your comment which goes like this anyways i'm back on track uh, anyways, I'm back on track, and having read a couple of chapters in a row, I have to say that I've been really impressed with the writing. It feels so sharp and clever again. A sort of understated wittiness. I kind of still hate Phil, though. Nora is so much better than Mildred. Come on, Phil. Yeah, but Nora doesn't have those nice, cold, skinny, dead lips <laughs> that Phil is so attracted to. Um... I do agree, though. The writing is crisp at the moment. It is crisp and quite comedic, too. Swims to the mum she said, I never could get into Terrace House or Big Brother, but I love The Circle. Oh, and Instant Hotel, which is Australian. I watched it mostly because Ander is Australian. Oh, cool. I've never heard of Instant Hotel, but um, I love that you could watch it and think, hey, this is where that Ander guy is from. Um, I'm in the Yarra Valley, by the way. If anyone wonders the backdrop of where you're hearing this from, Google search Yarra Valley, which is spelt Y-A-R-R-A, um, and even just hit images, and you'll get a little idea of where I am. A lot of hot air balloons, apparently. <laughs> there are a lot of hot air balloons, actually, now that I think about it. Um, cool. All right. Anyway, continuing. 
Uh, oh, okay. And the rest of them is the rest of this conversation is I am Norwegian and swims at the moment. Fishy talking about <laughs> um, reality TV. So I'm just going to skip past that. And hey, let's read the next chapter because that's our discussion had. Hopefully, Phil will stop um, inducing headaches in us, us poor readers, because um, his behaviour is getting bloody crazy. Chapter. What what chapter are we up to? How come I keep forgetting what chapter we're up to? 73. All right. Chapter 73 goes like this. Three weeks later, Philip saw Mildred and her baby off to Brighton. She had made a quick recovery and looked better than he had ever seen her. She was going to a boarding house where she had spent a couple of weekends with Emil Miller and had written to say that her husband was obliged to go to Germany on business and she was coming down with her baby. She got pleasure out of the stories she invented and she showed a certain fertility of invention in the working of, out of the details. Mildred proposed to find in Brighton some woman who would be willing to take charge of the baby. Philip was startled at the callousness with which she insisted on getting rid of it so soon, but she argued with common sense that the poor child had much better be put somewhere before it grew used to her. Philip had expected the maternal instinct to make itself felt when she had had the baby two or three weeks and had counted on this to help him persuade her to keep it, but nothing of the sort occurred. Mildred was not unkind to her baby, she did all that was necessary. It amused her sometimes, and she talked about it a good deal, but at heart she was indifferent to it. She could not look upon it as a part of herself. She fancied it resembled its father already. She was continually wondering how she would manage when it grew older, and she was exasperated with herself for being such a fool as to have it at all. If I'd only known then all I do now, she said. She laughed at Philip because he was anxious about its welfare. You couldn't make more fuss if you were the father, she said. I'd like to see Emil getting into such a stew about it. Philip's mind was full of the stories he had heard of baby farming and the ghouls who ill-treated the wretched children that selfish, cruel parents have put in their charge. Sorry about that. Loud motorbike going past. Don't be so silly, said Mildred. That's when you give a woman a sum down to look after a baby. But when you're going to pay so much a week, it's to their interest to look after it well. Philip insisted that Mildred should place the baby with people who had no children of their own and would promise to take no other. Don't haggle about the price, he said. I'd rather pay half a guinea a week than run any risk of the kid being starved or beaten. You're a funny old thing, Philip, she laughed. To him there was something very touching in the child's helplessness. It was small, ugly, querulous. Its birth had been looked forward to with shame and anguish. Nobody wanted it. It was dependent on him, a stranger, for food, shelter and clothes to cover its nakedness. As the train started, he kissed Mildred. He would have kissed the baby too, but he was afraid she would laugh at him. You will write to me, darling, won't you? I shall look forward to your coming back with, oh, such impatience. Mind you get through your exam. He had been very he had been working for it industriously, and now, with only ten days before him, he had made a final effort. He was very anxious to pass, first to save himself time and expense, for money had been slipping through his fingers during the last four months with incredible speed, and then because this examination marked the end of the drudgery. After that, the student had to do with medicine, midwifery, and surgery, the interest of which was more vivid than the anatomy and physiology with which he had been hitherto concerned. 
Philip looked forward with interest to the rest of the curriculum. Nor did he want to have to confess to Mildred that he had failed, though the examination was difficult and the majority of candidates were ploughed at the first attempt. He knew that she would think less well of him if he did not succeed. She had a peculiarly humiliating way of showing what she thought. Mildred sent him a postcard to announce her safe arrival, and he snatched half an hour every day to write a long letter to her. He had always a certain shyness in expressing himself by word of mouth, but he found he would, could tell her, pen in hand, all sorts of things which it would have made him feel ridiculous to say. Profiting by the discovery, he poured out to her his whole heart. He had never been able to tell her before how his adoration filled every part of him, so that all his actions, all his thoughts, were touched with it. He wrote to her of the future, the happiness that lay before him, and the gratitude with which he owed her. He asked himself, he had often asked himself before, but had never put it into words, what it was in her that filled him with such extravagant delight. He did not know. He knew only that when she was with him, he was happy, and when she was away from him, the world was on a sudden cold and grey. He knew only that when he thought of her, his heart seemed to grow big, in his body so that it was difficult to breathe as if it pressed against his lungs and it throbbed so that the delight of her presence was almost pain his knees shook and he felt strangely weak as though not having eaten he were tremulous from want of food he looked forward eagerly to her answers he did not expect her to write often for he knew that letter writing came difficultly to her and he was quite content with the clumsy little note that arrived in reply to four of his. She spoke of the boarding house in which she had taken a room, of the weather and the baby, told him she had been for a walk on the front with a lady friend whom she had met in the boarding house and who had taken such a fancy to baby. She was going to the theatre on Saturday night and Brighton was filling up. It touched Philip because it was so matter-of-fact. The crabbed style, the formality of the matter, gave him a queer desire to laugh and to take her in his arms and kiss her. He went into the examination with happy confidence. There was nothing in either of the papers that gave him trouble. He knew that he had done well, and though the second part of the examination was viva voce, and he was more nervous, he managed to answer the questions adequately. He sent a, excuse me, <clears throat> he sent a triumphant telegram to Mildred when the result was announced. When he got back to his rooms, Philip found a letter from her saying that she thought it would be better for her to stay another week in Brighton. She had found a woman who would be glad to take the baby for seven shillings a week, but she wanted to make inquiries about her, and she was herself benefiting so much by the sea air. She was sure a few days would, more would do her no end of good. She hated asking Philip for money, but would he send some by return, as she had had to buy herself a new hat? She couldn't go about with her lady friend, always in the same hat, and her lady friend was so dressy. Philip had a moment of bitter disappointment. It took away all his pleasure at getting through his examination. If she loved me one quarter as much as I love her, she couldn't bear to stay away a day longer than necessary. He put the thought away from him quickly. It was pure selfishness. Of course, her health was more important than anything else, but he had nothing to do now. He might spend the week with her in Brighton, and they could be together all day. His heart leaped at the thought. It would be amusing to appear before Mildred suddenly with the information that he had taken a room in the boarding house. He looked out trains, but he paused. He was not certain that she would be pleased to see him. She had made friends in Brighton. He was quiet, 
and she liked boisterous joviality, he realised that she amused herself more with other people than with him. It would torture him if he felt for an instant that he was in the way. He was afraid to risk it. He dared not even write and suggest that without nothing to keep him in town, he would like to spend the week where he could see her every day. She knew she had... She knew he had nothing to do. If she wanted him to come, she would have asked him too. He dared not risk the anguish he would suffer if he proposed to come and she made excuses to prevent him. He wrote to her the next day, sent her a five-pound note, and at the end of his letter said that it was she, that it that if she were very nice and cared to see him for the weekend, he would be glad to run down, but she was by no means to alter any plans she had made. He awaited her answer with impatience. In it, she said that if she had only known before, she could have arranged it, but she had promised to go to a musical hall on the Saturday night. Besides, it would make the people at the boarding house talk if he stayed there. Why did he not come on Sunday morning and spend the day? They could lunch at the Metropole, and she could take him afterwards to see the very superior ladylike person who was going to take the baby. Sunday, he blessed the day because it was fine. As the train approached Brighton, the sun poured through the carriage window. Mildred was waiting for him on the platform. How jolly of you to come and meet me, he cried as he seized her hands. You expected me, didn't you? I hoped you would. I say, how well you're looking. It's done me a rare lot of good, but I think I'm wise to stay here as long as I can. And there are a very nice class of people at the boarding house. I wanted cheering up after seeing nobody all these months. It was dull sometimes. She looked very smart in her new hat, a large black straw with a great many inexpensive flowers on it, and in her neck floated a long boa of imitation swans down. She was still very thin, and she stooped a little when she walked. She had always done that, but her eyes did not seem so large, and though she never had any colour, her skin had lost the earthy look it had. They walked down to the sea. Philip, remembering he had not walked with her for months, grew suddenly conscious of his limp and walked stiffly in the attempt to conceal it. "'Are you glad to see me?' he asked, love dancing madly in his heart. "'Of course I am. You needn't ask that. By the way, Griffith sends you his love. What cheek!' He had talked to her a great deal of Griffiths. He had told her how flirtatious he was and amused her often with the narration of some adventure which Griffiths under the seal of secrecy had imparted to him. Mildred had listened with some pretense of disgust sometimes, but generally with curiosity, and Philip admiringly had enlarged upon his friend's good looks and charms. I'm sure you'll like him just as much as I do. He's so jolly and amusing. He's such an awfully good sort. Philip told her how, when he, the, how, when they were perfect strangers, Griffiths had nursed him through an illness, and in the telling, Griffiths' self-sacrifice lost nothing. You can't help liking him, said Philip. I don't like good-looking men, said Mildred. <laughs> They're too conceited for me. He wants to know you. I've talked to him about you an awful lot. What have you said? asked Mildred. Philip had no one but Griffiths to talk to of his love for Mildred, and little by little had told him the whole story of his connection with her. He described to her, he, he described her to him fifty times. He dwelt amorously on every detail of her appearance, and Griffiths knew exactly how her thin hands were shaped and how her white face, how white her face was, and he laughed at Philip when he talked of the charm of her pale, thin lips. 
By Jove, I'm glad I don't take things so badly as that, he said. Life wouldn't be worth living. Philip smiled. Griffiths did not know the delight of being so madly in love that it was like meat and wine in the air once breathed and whatever else was essential to existence. Griffiths knew that Philip had looked after the girl while she was having her baby and was now going away with her. Well, I must say you've deserted. Sorry, I must say you've deserved to get something, he remarked. It must have cost you a pretty penny. It's lucky you can afford it. I can't, said Philip, but what do I care? Since it was early for lunch and Philip and Mildred sat in one of the shelters on the parade, stunning themselves and watched the people pass. There were the Brighton shop boys who walked in twos and threes, swinging their canes, and there were the Brighton shop girls who tripped along in giggling bunches. They could tell the people who had come down from London for the day. The keen air gave a Philip to their weariness. There were many Jews, stout ladies in tight satin dresses and diamonds, little corpulent men with a gesticulative manner. There were middle-aged genteel men, sorry, gentlemen, <laughs> genteel men. There were middle-aged gentlemen spending a weekend in one of the large hotels, carefully dressed, and they walked industriously after too substantial a breakfast to give themselves an appetite for too substantial a luncheon. They exchanged the time of day with friends and talked to Dr. Brighton and or London by the sea. Here and there a well-known actor passed, elaborately unconscious of the attention he excited. Sometimes he wore patent leather boots, a coat with an astrakhan collar, and carried a silver-knobbed stick, and sometimes, looking as though he had come from a day's shooting, he strolled in knickerbockers and ulster of Harris tweed and a tweed hat on the back of his head. The sun shone on the blue sea, and the blue sea was trim and neat. After luncheon, they went to Hove to see the woman who was taking charge of the baby. She lived in a small house in a back street, but it was clean and tidy. Her name was Mrs. Harding. She was an elderly, stout person with grey hair and a red, fleshy face. She looked motherly in her cap, and Philip thought she seemed kind. Won't you find it an awful nuisance to look after a baby? he asked her. She explained that her husband was a curate, a good deal older than herself, who had difficulty in getting permanent work since Vickers wanted young men to assist them. He earned a little now, and then by doing locums, when someone took a holiday or fell ill, and a charitable institution gave them a small pension, but her life was lonely. It would be something to do to look after a child, and a few shillings a week paid for it would help her keep things going. She promised that it would be well fed. Quite the lady, isn't she, said Mildred, when they went away. They went back to have tea at the Metropole. Mildred liked the crowd and the band. Philip was tired of talking and watched her face as she looked with keen eyes at the dresses of the women who came in. She had a peculiar sharpness for reckoning up what things cost. And now and then she learned, leaned over to him and whispered the result of her meditations. Do you see that aggregate, aigrette there? That cost every bit of seven guineas. Or... Look at that ermine, Philip. That's a rabbit, that is. Not, that's not ermine. She laughed triumphantly. I'd know it a mile off. Philip smiled happily. He was glad to see her pleasure and the ingenuousness of her conversation amused and touched him. The band played sentimental music. After dinner, they walked down to the station and Philip took her arm. He told her what arrangements he had made for their journey to France. She was to come up to London at the end of the week, but she told him that she could not go away till the Saturday of the week after that. He had already engaged a room in a hotel in Paris. He was looking forward eagerly to taking the tickets. You won't mind going second class, will you? 
we mustn't be extravagant, and it'll be all the better if we can do ourselves pretty well when we get there. He had talked to her a hundred times of the quarter. They would wander through it, its pleasant old streets, and they would sit idly in the charming gardens of the Luxembourg. If the weather was fine, perhaps when they had had enough of Paris, they might go to the Fontainebleau. The trees would be just bursting into leaf. The green of the forest in spring was more beautiful than anything he knew. It was like a song, and it was like the happy pain of love. Mildred listened quietly. He turned to her and tried to look deep into her eyes. You do want to come, don't you? he said. Of course I do, she smiled. You don't know how I'm looking forward to it. I don't know how I shall get through the next days. I am so afraid something will happen to prevent it. It maddens me sometimes that I can't tell you how much I love you. And at last, at last... He broke off. They reached the station, but they had dawdled on the way, and Philip had barely time to say good night. He kissed her quickly and ran towards the wicket as fast as he could. She stood where he left her. He was strangely grotesque when he ran. Oh, God. Ah, oh, Philip, you idiot. All right, there's another chapter for you. Oh. I... <laughs> Philip is so dumb. Oh, all right. Head over to the subreddit. Let's talk about how dumb Philip is. And um, <laughs> thanks for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.